and welcome to Starkville. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Glanville. Mike tried his coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny Jason Stark <laughs> is against humanity. Take away the human elements of Starkville. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Starkville. I am Jason Stark. I write about baseball for The Athletic in good times and in times like these because, you know what, we need to be there for all the people who are really missing baseball right now, and that includes us. Uh, As always, joined by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer and field of dreams hater, (laughs) Doug Glanville. (laughs) Doug, I don't know if I should be saying hello or goodbye to you right now. I don't know, but here's I always have to add to the list. And yesterday I was the person in you know double dutch and you do the jump ropes. So I swung the double dutch rope swinging guy and uh, my wife was on the other side so my daughter could jump in. So yeah, wow. pretty pretty tricky, but I got it down pretty well. So okay, well, the, I- the turner Yes. Might, you know, I'll, I'll miss you telling those stories when you're no longer <laughs> part of Starkville. You know, if, if people did not join us last week, uh, they should know that the very future of Doug Glanville as a Starkville resident and co-host hangs in the balance this week. Uh, we had the town hall last week. Our evil mayor promised to deliberate on the most weighty question I think we've ever faced on this podcast. Should... Your relentless attacks on the, on the cinematic classic Field of Dreams force us to evict you as the co-host of this show. So, Doug, we're awaiting that verdict. Now, just minutes away, how nervous are you, my friend? I feel extremely confident for those of you who listened to last week's podcast. And uh, Jason's witness came in and totally... And accurately, however, supported my side, my version of events, and and my <laughs> credibility. And uh, that was the best witness uh, I've I've actually ever <laughs> experienced in my life. So I feel pretty good. So because I had my own witness, thanks to you, Jer- Jerry uh, Blevins came in, and then of course your witness kind of flipped on you. So we kind of had the two to zero thing. So of course I throw myself at the mercy of the mayor of Starkville. But I feel pretty good given the evidence submitted last week. Well, you know, you know, my friend Glenn Macnow uh, yes. did did turn on me. That was rough. <laughs> that was rough. But you know, now that I've had a chance to review his testimony, I don't think it was actually as pro Glanville as you might think. Uh, I'd still rank that movie number eleven, the eleventh <laughs> greatest sports movie of all time. So. All I know is we've never had an actual cliffhanger before in Starkville. So I feel like the tension is hanging in the air. It's kind of like a Doug Glanville pop-up <laughs> hanging there. Hanging. <laughs> so so we're, we'll resolve this case in just a couple of minutes. Uh, but I want the folks who are listening out there to know that whether Doug is here for this whole show or just for the next three minutes, this <laughs> podcast will continue. 
So either we or I will be talking in more depth about the big obstacles in the way of baseball's reported plans to start this season in empty spring training parks. And either we or I will talk about the true meaning of a sound that we've mostly taken for granted, the roar of the crowd. And either we or I will discuss whether our friend Joe Posnanski got it right or wrong this week when he anointed Willie Mays and not Babe Ruth as baseball's greatest player ever. But first, uh, I, I felt it's important to update America on the other big Starkville story last week that left people in suspense across this great land. And that story was, did I somehow summon my inner plumbing and mechanical skills to fix the broken washing machine in the Stark household? Doug, yeah. I am happy to announce, delighted that the washing machine is indeed fixed. But it wouldn't exactly be accurate to say that I fixed it. <laughs> right. uh, I like, just for the record, I did do some stuff. I did tighten up every hose and every bolt. I attached them to the right places. I'm getting no credit for any of that around here because you know who really got this thing fixed? <laughs> it was my wife, of course. Here's how it went. Like, I had given up. I'll admit it. I, I was getting nowhere. I I was sure I was going to make things worse, probably flood our house, flood the whole neighborhood. So I gave up. And then, like 10 minutes later, my wife is screaming, I did it. I did it. <laughs> and Doug, it's true. She's did it. She did it. And she's never been proud of her over herself. Never. Frankly, like, I don't blame her because it's now official. I am useless. But that that's my story. You can feel free to congratulate her. Uh, by the way, she also voted for you in that Twitter poll. Very nice. Thank you. Uh, so you, you can congratulate her. And I also want to know how the caulking is going at your house. That's <laughs> right. our project. Well, it's perfect. You talk about useless info. You've always talked about that. So, yeah. you know, the feeling of useless can, can wash over us at different times like these. So yeah, I, 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 I do appreciate that. So <laughs> your wife is now Mariana Rivera coming in, closing it out. <laughs> yeah. And I, I appreciate it. You always need a Mariano in every house. So I, I, right. I, I, so in my house, I am still on deck here on the caulking and I will be doing it myself, but my wife is super handy. But the caulking materials took a while to arrive, so a little bit late in going. But my plan is uh -huh. to caulk the bathtub around the walls and the floors and, and the ridges and the ceilings and all these things. Well, not ceilings, but close enough. So uh, that wouldn't be good if it was in the ceiling. But um, <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm excited. So we'll see what happens. You know, I, 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 try, I, I was relying on that material slow to arrive trick too for a while, but then the materials yes. did in fact show up. <laughs> so then- no good came of that for me, but at least the washing machine works. Yes. Um, okay, before we bring in the mayor and we announce this momentous verdict, I just want to say again, uh, all of us here at Starkville are thinking of everybody out there whose lives have been touched and altered by this virus. Uh, so if you're healthy and still employed and you can help in any way, there are people out there who need us. Uh, the Starks donated this week to Feeding America, which supports food banks around the country, uh, also to Direct Relief, uh, which helps get desperately needed medical supplies to our health workers. Uh, 
I donated to the GoFundMe that was started by uh, Tom Kohler, the pitcher uh, for healthcare workers. Um, so let me just say again, please help if you can. Um, I know in the Glenville household, uh, the face masks are continue to be sewn and delivered. Doug, any idea how many face masks you have now distributed in your part of the world? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's it's you know she's got to be getting in the thirties in there somewhere. She's been sewing nonstop. Moved moved on to getting some caps. Wow. And some of her friends, we have a friend who's an ER doc in D.C., so she put in requests, and she'll send patterns and the requested patterns, and she sews them. So she just spends quite a bit of her day just working on it or adjusting them, trying different versions. I'd say in terms of uh, different models, she's tried probably you know 50-plus different, wow. uh, you know, put out, printed, and, and I should say sewed off the prints. So she, she's she got a lot of skills and and known, known for her Halloween costumes usually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now she's uh, doing something of, of service. So in, in speaking to what you're saying about how to help, sometimes you just you, you can do your small part and organically do it. Every little bit matters and, and concern for others is so important now. Never been more important. Never. So we'll keep you updated on what we're doing to try to help. If you can help in any way, uh, there are a lot of people in this country who need you right now. All right. It's time. It's time for a moment that could forever alter the fabric of Starkville. Uh, that, That would be the verdict on the future of Mr. Douglas M. Glanville. Uh, last week on Starkville, we held our first ever town hall, uh, featuring not just us, but actual expert witnesses, uh, one of whom turned on me. <laughs> but they, uh, they weighed in on whether Doug's utter contempt for the beloved baseball <laughs> What, you don't agree it's utter contempt? It's obviously utter contempt for the beloved baseball classic, Field of Dreams. And is that contempt so heinous that we need to boot him off this show? That is the question that is before this court. But before we find out what happens to Doug, I've been told that the defendant has some final words. Mr. Glanville, thank you. Speak thank up. you. Yes, uh, I just I just want to uplift the uh, democratic tenets of our society. I want to continue to uh, express this. So I say this to the mayor. Uh, Of course, these are my own words, of course, so let me throw this together. We desperately need your strength and wisdom to to triumph over our fears, our prejudices, and ourselves. Give us the courage to do what is right. That's it. That's all I got. Uh, That's from from Amistad, John Quincy Adams. Wow. That was powerful stuff, but you realize that he's the evil mayor of Starkville, right? We don't call him the evil mayor for nothing. That's right. You know, That's why I'm calling to his better sensi- sensibilities right we're now. We're find out if those actually exist. Uh, we've yes. been waiting a week now for Cam, the evil mayor, to weigh the evidence and render his verdict. I'm thinking in a, just mere moments, one of us could be shouting, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> this is- friends, friends all rise because the not so honorable evil mayor is about to speak. Mr. Mayor, the floor is yours. Yes. Yes, thank you. Uh, and since I don't have a bailiff, you did a great job filling in that void, Mr. Stark. 
so honorable evil mayor is how I will be addressed <laughs> during this time in Starkville Town Hall. But Mr. Glanville versus the Field of Dreams case is coming to a head and the verdict will be handed down in light of the stirring testimony from Mr. Blevins and Mr. McNow last week. And compounded with those circumstantial, the evidence found on social media in support of Mr. Glanville's pose. Mm-hmm. I state, and the verdict is, innocent for Mr. Doug Glanville in his position on Field of Dreams starring Kevin Costner. And he shall remain a citizen just, justice was served. Starkville. Justice was served properly without pride and prejudice. I thank you. Dear Honorable Evil Mayor, thank you. I, I'm stunned by this verdict. I'm stunned. You know, the people voted on this. Uh, of course, by the people, no, I mean right, my Twitter your, followers. Your followers. But, <laughs> but how did those people vote, everybody? They voted overwhelmingly <laughs> that Doug must go. Uh, we might just have to take this one all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, I'm going I'm to confer with my attorneys. I'm going to give the defendant one more chance to gloat. Go ahead. Yes, well, I think we recognize that would not be very field of dreamsian to to kick people out of Iowa. You know what I'm saying? Like it just doesn't doesn't work. And I played for the Iowa Cubs two years, so I feel pretty good. I'm almost like a citizen. So uh, you know, it's I think they recognize that's that's a little too far to 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 exile. Even though I would have started my own suburb right outside of Starkville, that's besides the point. I I think it's I think justice was served. Well done. Appreciated it. Thank you. And uh, Mr. McNow, I appreciate your your candor, even in your wisdom, all coming together at one. Thank you. I, I'm speechless. I don't even know if I can continue. You might have to take the Stark out of Stark. I, I just, I, I'm just shocked by the verdict. Shocked. But I, we're gonna, I guess as the true professional that I am, just take my word for it, we're, we're going to have to plow forward. And talk about some actual baseball news. Is that okay? Are we ready to move on? Ready to go. Even now, you are ready to move on. Now Good that news. I'm home. Now that I'm home. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yep. Uh, since you're going to continue, let's review. A week ago, we talked with our friend Ken Rosenthal about uh, a couple of stories that he wrote detailing how baseball could potentially bring all 30 teams to Arizona, uh, essentially quarantine them all, and play baseball in spring training parks with nobody in the stands. Then on Friday, uh, we had Bob Nightingale of USA Today writing a story uh, talking about a variation of that idea. Uh, that one would essentially blow up the national and American leagues for a year. And instead, we'd have a grapefruit league and a cactus league. So we'd have teams playing games in their home spring training parks, but again, with empty seats. Um, so, Doug, before we talk about this, let me tell you what I've heard. I think that Florida-Arizona scenario seems like it's really remote and pretty unlikely. Uh, There might have been some brainstorming along those lines, but nothing that's appeared to advance beyond that. Uh, There's been a lot more talk and work around the Arizona plan, but let's just make this clear. Um, This is all just planning and hoping. Basically, everything that you've heard and a lot that you haven't heard would come down to those two things, hopes and plans. Uh, Baseball has no choice. It has to plan for a million different scenarios. 
because it would be irresponsible not to make those plans. But uh, it feels like we're still weeks away from knowing whether any of this is even feasible. So first off, Doug, you agree with that? We're weeks away? I mean, at, at the least. I mean, I know there's a lot of dates thrown out there, you know, different depending on what state you're in on some circumstances. But, uh, you know, we just, you know, nobody really knows. Nobody really knows the extent of it. And the key, even beyond if you get to a certain level of safety, the unification uh, when you're talking about a you know national sport here to travel and all these things is going to be a whole nother thing. Just getting logistics and trusting it. If you have setbacks, how you're going to handle it. Um, you know, you see worldwide, whether Singapore or other countries, some of them have had setbacks. So you don't know um, how this will play out. So of, of course, it's important to plan and you have to think about the scenarios and be ready just in case things go really well. And now all of a sudden you are able to do it. But um you know, we're we're far away from seeing it into something cohesive or at least something you could execute. But I, I do think it's very important to continue to consider all options so that you can hit the ground running as quickly as you possibly could in a safe manner. But it's gonna it's gonna take some logistical genius to to make this thing uh, come through, unless it's on the other side of this completely, which may be the way it goes. Maybe. Um, all right. Let's just say. Baseball were to explore that Arizona idea more seriously than it has. Now, we have the health issues, which you just mentioned. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the piece in the Daily Beast, uh, which Sean Doolittle and his wife talked about their concerns and uh, recommend it to everybody. Uh, very powerful and insightful stuff. Um, obviously, the health issues are the most important uh and hey, they're really a category under themselves. Beyond that, uh, I think we've heard two major themes from players uh, and the kinds of objections that they've raised so far. So I'm going to run them by you. Uh, first would be, can is it possible to convince all these players to leave their families for four months or more during a pandemic? Now, we heard Zach Wheeler, who just signed with the Phillies, uh, tell the athletic last week that his wife's expecting a baby this summer and he's not going to abandon her for months under those circumstances. So Doug, you played baseball, you have a family, you touched on this last week when we were talking to Ken. If you were playing right now, would you be willing to leave your family for that long a period of time if it was the only option to continue playing baseball? Oof, I mean, well, I first initial reaction is no. I mean, no, uh, you know, simply because I'm also living it as a, as a father, right? I'm living it as a husband right now. And you see the day-to-day stress, you see the day-to-day, uh, you know, just challenges. Something as basic, you know, which is not basic as homeschooling or figuring out. And then the, just the safety issue. Are we going to the store? Do you need to, you know, do you have to wipe down everything that you touch or don't touch or someone else touched or the mail person, you know, someone delivering the mail? I mean, it's it's just constant evaluation of your safety and the health of others. So I don't know. I can't imagine trying to just leave that completely 100% just in, in, on my wife, for example. or And because I'm just one circumstance, all these players have so many other. They could be in, you know, in the Dominican Republic. They could, I mean, you just could be, anything could be possible. So yeah. to imagine that every single player in 
with in family or any situation could be able to just act like, oh, it's no problem. It's, it's hard to fathom. I mean, you might have grandparents to help you out. You might be able to pull something off in some circumstances, but I have to think the vast majority, uh, especially when you talk about that length of time where you're just separated, I, I just don't see players agreeing to that. And uh, because like you said, I mean, and one example, I, I might've mentioned it when we talked about a little bit about 9-11. When we, when we, la- we were in Atlanta and the next series was in Cincinnati. So as a team, once we thought we might play at some point, we moved and we got on the bus and headed to Cincinnati. Halfway through, there was a discussion and ultimately a vote about whether we should turn right, basically, and go back to Philly, which is home, or keep going to Cincinnati. Turned out we didn't have a choice because of the bus driver and, and the travel. So every single player, except for Dennis Cook, voted to go to Philadelphia, not anywhere else, go home. <laughs> go home because mm-hmm. everybody was scared for their lives, their families, everything. The one player, Dennis Cook, that voted to go back to Atlanta, why? Because he lived in Atlanta. <laughs> His family was in Atlanta. So, I mean, it's just it's just your reaction. And so now you're talking about something that's upon us every day. Uh, they're going to have to come up with something creative. I don't know if in the plan they're considering a hotel for families or I, I don't know, but there's, you know, just think of the the fact that you can pass this on to other people and you, and people are going to the stores and I don't know how you contain it when it gets to be so extended, but I don't, you know, once again, I don't see, how, also I don't see how you separate them from their families. It's just hard to fathom. It's, it is hard to fathom. Um, let's talk about the second objection. Uh, are players going to be willing to take even less money in salary than they've already agreed upon? Um, you know, there's, there is an agreement two weeks old that um, the players would earn a prorated portion of their salaries based on how many games are actually played. So if 81 games were played, theoretically, they'd get half their salary. But we're talking about a completely different circumstance now if – uh, games are being held not in home parks, uh, not in home cities, not with anybody in the stands. So I've been told by several clubs uh, revenues would be slashed so drastically in this Arizona scenario. They would expect the players to take much less than their full salary. And and look, I don't know exactly how much less we're talking about, but – I think certainly more than half, possibly more, would have to be negotiated. But that would just be a function of there's no ticket revenue. Uh, you'd have enormous costs to keep, what, several thousand people quarantined for that many months. And you'd even have cuts in broadcast revenue. The circumstances would be so different. Um, so, Doug, let me ask you again. Let's just say you were making, we'll pick a number, $10 million a year. Would you agree to play for a million dollars under these circumstances? That's one tenth of your salary, but right. we'd still be talking about a million bucks at a time right. and millions of Americans have lost their jobs. Right. Well, and that's why this is, you know, going to be such an incredibly socially sensitive uh, uh, situation and how it's resolved is going to be, you know, open to the public domain in, in, a, in a very unique way. And they have to tread lightly. Uh, respectfully for, as you mentioned, so many Americans are, uh, you know, people are out of work 
the, you know, people day to day, and even outside of just executing this quarantine concept, right? Well, there's a lot of people not having access to testing, and so how do you justify it unless you have um, some way to ex- explain or show your social value and the things you're going to do to sort of bring all this, all these solutions to everyone. It's it's very difficult. So from the economics, sure, a million dollars is still a ton of money, of course. And uh, I would be okay with it if they come down and sit in, at the table together, Players Association, Major League Baseball, a sense of maybe even the larger community, and work it out. And work it out in as fair a way as possible. Uh, for the game, it's important that if it can continue, it should continue. Once again, as long as it's safe and as long as you're weighing the social costs and social consequences. But there's no question that if you know if I'm a you know member of the players' association and the players' association is saying, "Look, this is important. Take this deal." That would carry a lot more weight for me to say yes. And because you need everybody, you can't just be like, "Oh yeah, the Marlins aren't going to play." The entire you need all the teams to agree which is why I think it is a, a players association uh, issue in terms of getting the message across and getting everybody on the same page. But these are unique times and, and they're just, you know, it, and your career, that one year of your career is significant. And, you, and the game, you know, for the viability, if it can, and under those circumstances continue, you try to make it work and you don't want economics to, to be the main hurdle in all this. Yeah, but I can tell you that the initial reaction to that idea that players would have to take a massive cut in salary has been, we just negotiated this two weeks ago. The world has changed that much in two weeks. Um, I, I, I think it's possible, but I think it'd be a really difficult negotiation to convince players to take – 25% of their salary, 10% of their salary, whatever it is, or some blanket fixed amount that everybody would make. Uh, I, I, like, I don't know if your stars would be willing to do that. And you, you know, you touched on this. You can only play if all players agree to do this and all teams agree to do this. You can't even have 90% of the players sign saying, all right, I'm in, but then let's say Garrett Cole and Zach Wheeler and Mookie Betts say, nope, not me. I'm out. You also, you can't have a situation where the Royals balk, the Padres and the Tigers balk. The other 27 teams want to play. Everyone has to play. Everyone has to be all in or this thing falls apart. So I don't know if I foresee a scenario where everyone would be all in. Do you? Um, No, unless you have some unifier and – I don't know how that is, but the league and the players' association are going to have to negotiate in the greatest, most harmonious form possible to get on the same page. And you know, yes, there's not great history <laughs> there, but you know, these are these are times where you you have to figure out a way to push it aside if you want the game to c- continue. And and there's still huge question marks about that from a safety standpoint. So you you want to at least get out of the way the things that are achievable, right? That you have some semblance of control over. And maybe it is. You take a revenue pot and you compare it to the revenue expected and you divide it and maybe you come up with something very uh, proportional and fair, uh, you know, but you got You have to get everybody together or you have nothing. Yep, no doubt. Uh, all right, let's move along here and talk about one more aspect of this, which is something I wrote about last week, and that is the power of 
of the roar of the crowd. And Doug, I've thought a lot about this this time. Uh, you know what makes sports great? I, I think it's that we share it. We share it with each other. Sports is the most powerful unifying force in American life right now. I truly believe that. So like you've, you've talked a couple of times about the, the social significance of baseball. Um, when people talk about baseball returning and having that significance, the kind of national healing power that it had after 9-11, which is now 19 years ago, I have a question. Is that even possible if there's no one there watching and especially no one there cheering? In the column that I wrote, uh, I looked back at the Mike Piazza game-winning homer in the first sporting event played in New York after 9-11 back in 2001. Uh, I talked to Joe McEwing. Uh, he played in that game for the Mets. I spoke with John Sherholtz, who's the Hall of Fame general manager of the Braves back then. John Sherholtz said something amazing. He said, never in his life has he ever cheered for being beaten, but he did that night because for the healing of the nation and that city, that's the way that game needed to end. Those were his words. And if you watch the highlight of that Homer, the Piazza Homer, uh, I embedded the highlight of my column if you'd like to see it again. It isn't just the swing of the bat that grabs you. It's the sound of that ballpark. It's the emotion in those seats. It's that shared experience. So I want to ask you something. You played in the big leagues for nine years. You played baseball all your life. Let's say that home run was hit in an empty stadium. Same box score, same result, same pennant race scenario, but no one there. Do you think John Sherls would have gotten so caught up in that moment that he actually would have cheered for a game-losing home run? No. No. I no, mean, right? I, no. 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 That's, that's the power of fans. And uh, I've re reflected a lot lately about what fans have meant to me, <clears throat> what fans have meant to me in my career, uh, or just, you know, just exposure, watch, watching to other people's expression of what fans have meant. And, and you can't, it's not quantifiable, first of all. Uh, the spirit of it is so uh, fluid and um, almost, you know, ghostly in a, in, in a, in a powerful way that, I don't even know how to explain other than the moments that I've had with fans. And I've had so many experiences where one fan said a word or uh, one fan, you know, made a gesture or shook my hand or wrote a letter or anything that literally changed everything, changed the moment. Uh, you know, and, and as a player, you have tons of these moments, you know, whether I misread a fly ball and Eric Milton's almost no hitter. Uh, there, and and there's the low times, and then there's the high times of, and one of the high times you know I think about is uh, Game Three of the uh, NLCS. Um, that was something that really stood out. And you know I was playing for the Cubs, and you know here we are in the, in the this is the closest, and by the way the only playoff experience I had in my entire career. And all of a sudden, after sitting for so long, that was in the batter's box and I could have this moment. And what I could relate to, you mentioned this roar of the crowd. It was like a plane taking off, right? So I, I hit this line drive through the, the vacated hole at shortstop, goes to the wall and end up going all the way to third and end up this ended up being the game-winning uh, run for that uh, game three. And of course, the Cubs history, as you know, had 100 years plus of futility at that point of no world championship. 
So I, <laughs> I think of that magic moment and how it collects to, sure, the center stage, but it's also what it meant to the fans when you talk about these, these important, significant social connections that bring it. It wasn't, there was, doesn't have to be a World Series on the line, doesn't have to be anything that is in the trophy case. It could simply be coming back from Tommy John surgery or coming, you know, what fans can absolutely impart on you in, in a way that, you know, really warms your heart and changes your life. So I, I, if you can do that in front of, and I'm talking about one fan here, one fan there, you could do it in front of millions of fans. Again, you want to do that. You want to have that opportunity because Scherholz never says that unless he's not caught in what the fans can do and how they're so much a part of the team. So, you know, I, I hope we find a way if you come back that the fans are there because that means, first of all, we're safer, we're safe, and we can share this experience together. And you'll you'll realize very quickly that the players will real will will express that they're fans too, you know, they're fans too, and and they need this healing together as one. And uh, there's no question that that would make a huge difference on the sustainability of the game and just what it means for the rest of our society. Yeah, and uh, I mean, you said that beautifully. And when you described that moment when you hit that triple, you know, what, like what stands out to me is. That moment, you don't just remember what you did, you remember what it sounded like to do it. And there are so many times I've sat in a ballpark and just listened to that sound and thought, this is amazing, amazing. And uh, I, I just, I can't get that thought out of my head right now because I'm convinced if baseball comes back, I can't imagine the scenario where there are people in the seats, at least initially. And that's just such an empty feeling, literally and figuratively. Uh, the reader comments to my column were great. Um, and people talked about the idea that, well, we'd be, we'd be watching at home. Millions of us would be watching these games. We just wouldn't be there. Maybe like, our whole street or our whole apartment building would cheer for those moments so loudly that it would have the same feeling. I, I don't think so. Uh, people will find ways to express it and feel it, but is that the same thing, Doug? Well, no, it's not. I mean, it. The people would do that anyway, right? Those who weren't at the game would still be outside in the rafters and <laughs> and cheering. I mean, that you know, you think about the Cubs winning the World Series, you know. So that would happen anyway. But it's the connection also to the people who are there. It, you you respond to that. I mean, you hit a ball and it echoes and rattles in the seats. I mean, what's what's that like? It's not the same. And we saw a little bit. Remember with the um, with Baltimore Orioles, they they would there was a yeah. protest with Freddie Gray, for example. That was a game, and it's it's surreal. But it's, there's something about the crescendos of fans and interactions, and and how it kind of ebbs and flows. You get this almost win probability in real life. That's what I like about that win probability graph, right? Because it is a storytelling. It's the high and it's the low, and it's the changes, and it's what happened and the significance of one moment, and it shifted things one direction or another. That's it. That's in real life with fans, and and it just. And the opportunity to fill stadiums for so such a, you know, you might have a 40-game schedule, I don't know, but just to have that reaction and that intimacy, all those fans you mentioned that are spilling out 
would be reacting to that also. I mean, so yeah, it'd be like, a you know, you think about who shot JR in Dallas and taking myself back. And that's actually almost <laughs> before my time, right? So yeah, all these millions of people watched it on TV, but it's not the same as a sporting event in live t- real time, uh, which, you know, is making history in, in every single moment, especially moments when we're coming back from something like this. So yeah, I, I hope we can do it together. Really do. Yeah, Second the motion. Uh, you know, Joe Ewing was also at that game in Baltimore. Uh, he was coach for the White Sox at that point, And he said it so perfectly. He said, that roar of the crowd, it's what we play for. That roar of the crowd, there's nothing like it. Absolutely. Doug, I, I, I'm glad we're back to answering trivia questions from our loyal listeners because they miss baseball. We miss baseball. And they clearly miss trivia because they were still tweeting questions at us. Uh, so thanks for doing that. It's our way of involving y- you all out there in this show, and we'll tell you how that works shortly. But let's go to this week's question. It comes from uh, Craig McCullough. His Twitter handle is at 2Ambers. That's at T-W-O-A-M-B-E-R-S. I don't know what that means, but his... Craig McCullough, <laughs> I know what that means. That's his name, okay? And here's what he asks us. Name the two future Major League managers who came up to bat right after Hank Aaron's 715th home run. And Doug, I think I've got this. I'm almost positive that it's Dusty Baker and Davey Johnson. Now, I know that Hank did play with quite a few future managers. So that's giving me some pause. I know he played with Joe Torre somewhere in that period. He played with Felipe Lou with the Braves somewhere in there. But I'm almost sure that it's Dusty and Davey. What do you think? Yeah. So since we're allowed to put both of our heads together, <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I definitely, well, Dusty, I remember because of the high five, right? The in, invention of the high five. Right. And somehow, so, uh, but I, yeah, I thought Joe Torre was my my guess. And so I had but Baker and Torre, but I, I'd gladly say uh, Torre and Felipe Alou, if you want to cover more bases. <laughs> <laughs> now we got to come up with, we got to come up with an answer. Yeah. So you, th- is, you think it's Dusty and Tory or Dusty and Davey? I still think Davey, but yeah, yeah. But, uh, I'm, let's, I'm, let, all right, let's find out. I'm good right. with that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's bring in the mayor. Mayor, we get this one right by any miracle. I can, for the first time, say I can't smear your names in front of you because Dusty Baker and Davey Johnson is the correct Woo-hoo! answer. All right. I like it when we're right. Very nice. Very <laughs> nice. Check, 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 check. Yeah. All right. That's very uplifting. How Good much did know. we win? Did we win something? What do, what do we win? Yeah. <laughs> you, 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 you win another week without a town hall. That's what you win. Fair okay. enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, now, speaking of Hank Aaron, uh, I, I don't think it'd be breaking news to say that Hank Aaron was one of the greatest players who ever lived. Uh, and since we like to use these questions as inspiration for one of our topics on the podcast, this feels like a great time to talk about Joe Posnanski's series in The Athletic on the 100 Greatest Players Ever, because that just concluded this week. Uh, I'm going to run through Joe's top 10. It's a cool list. 10 was Satchel Page, 9, Stan Musial, 8, Ty Cobb, 7, Walter Johnson, 
six, Ted Williams. So Ted Williams doesn't make the top five. Luke Gehrig doesn't even make the top ten. Uh, number five, Oscar Charleston of the Negro League. Go look up that guy sometime. You know he was six foot eight? Wow. I'd love to have seen Oscar Charleston play. Okay, then four was Hank. Three was Barry Bonds. So, I mean, it's not that hard to deduce who's left. It's Babe Ruth and Willie Mays. And on Monday, Joe unveiled his number one. Now, he did a fantastic job with this entire series. Uh, he wrote almost 300,000 words, Doug. Yeah. But number two was Babe Ruth. Number one was Willie Mays. And you know what? I don't agree with him. I would never say a single negative word about Willie Mays, obviously. But, Doug, the babe has to be number one. He has to. Nobody ever towered over a sport the way he did. Maybe any sport. Just to give you a little perspective, when Babe Ruth made his debut, you know what the record was for most career homers? About 138. So he broke that record by almost 600 homers. 600. <laughs> no one had ever hit 30 homers. Nobody really even approached it. The babe hit 60. And here's the thing. He just remember now, he didn't start his career as a hitter. He started as a pitcher. And like, I don't want to say he was pretty good as a pitcher, Doug, because he was actually only the most dominating left-handed pitcher in the game when he was pitching. Like, that's the clincher. Uh, I'm going to steal some stuff from my Stark Truth book. I think I'm okay. It's allowed, I'm allowed to steal from my own book, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Okay, so the best right-hander at that time, maybe of all time, was Walter Johnson. So you know what happened the first seven times Babe Ruth pitched against Walter Johnson? It was the Babe, six wins. Walter Johnson, one win. And it would have been seven for seven if the Babe hadn't blown a shutout and a two-run lead in the ninth inning of the game his team lost. So I want you to think about what Mike Trout is now. And then imagine, oh, suppose Mike Trout was also better at pitching than Max Scherzer. <laughs> That's what this guy was. So, Doug, with all due respect to Willie Mays, doesn't the babe have to be number one? Yeah, I I, I had trouble making that that argument. I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying to come up with something. I mean, look, yeah. I, I I and I read Joe's com, and I Joe is incredible. So uh, I think he he focused on some of the things that we talk a lot about. It's the storytelling and how Mays just had these iconic plays, the yeah. electricity by which he played center field, the defense. Now, of course, you just made the argument that, well, Ruth pitched also <laughs> and played on the other side of the ball and was dominant. But Mays, his defense was something so magical and so unexplainable to the level uh, of, you know, I don't know how many gold gloves did he win. I mean, 13, 14, you know, something, something astronomical. It was a double 20. Uh, it just jumps off the page that Mays was a storyteller throughout the way he played the game. And of course, he put the numbers up, 660 home run, 940 OPS. I mean, the guy was off the chain. Uh, and he also served in 1953, missed a season when he was just 22 years old to serve. So, uh, you know, he, he his career is, is incredible. Uh, led the war, war in 54 and 65, I mean, 11 years apart. And Ruth did plenty of this stuff too. There's, there's no question. But uh, that that's that's all I can really think of. <laughs> Because Mays is just 
you know, just had so many stories. And he he is able to bridge the 50s uh, into the 70s, you know, crossing into the teams, you know, leaving New York to go to the West Coast. And, you know, there's there's something that he was that kind of that continuity. But I don't know, statistically, I mean, Ruth is just, wow. I mean, I don't know what you can say. Actually, I was surprised. A-Rod, was A-Rod on that list somewhere? Where was Alex Rodriguez? He made the top 100. Oh, okay. I can't remember exactly where he yeah. was. I'll have to go back and take a look. His numbers, he, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you know, like you, you made an interesting point. I know, <clears throat> I know it was based on you know Joe's theory about this, but does does Willie Mays get points because there are actually living people who saw him play? And we you know we do have the the image of that World Series catch on Vic Wirtz in 1954, the, mm-hmm. the famous run back to center field and yeah, make the basket catch over his shoulder and that I mean I I've said many times that is the most famous defensive play in baseball history. In fact, the first time I took my son to the Hall of Fame, we were walking through that the third floor, you know, where you go, there's all these different years and themes. And we came across a life-size cardboard cutout of Willie Mays making that catch. And my son, Steve, said to me, what's this? So I told him, this is the most famous catch in the history of baseball. And I tried to tell him and I thought, Wait a second. Let's just watch the video, and uh, you know we watched that video together. And there was this period of time where we thought of that play as our catch, you know, because we had that special moment. Uh, was it was cool? So the, I mean, there is that vivid image of Willie Mays as a player because we have so much more footage. We don't have to yeah. have the just have to go back to Ken Burns. Um, you know, you mentioned that Willie lost a year because of he was serving in the military during the Korean War. It really was essentially two seasons, barely played the first season. Uh, you know, he hit 92 homers the two years after he came back. So it's it's believable that he could have hit 750 home runs. Uh, plus, he was the greatest defensive center fielder of his time, maybe of any time. He had years where he stole 40 bases, hit 20 triples, walked more than he struck out. He was an astonishing and breathtaking all-around player, and I get that argument. But he, he was not also a more dominant pitcher than Warren Spahn or Whitey Ford or Robin Roberts or Sandy Koufax or Bob Gibson. So I'm still going Bay, but I don't think there's any wrong answers in this quiz. Uh, all right, speaking of who's the greatest, I want to bring up another awesome piece in The Athletic. And that was Andy McCullough's look at the greatest players to wear every number in baseball history from zero to 99. Now, I used to find myself debating this stuff with my buddy Tim Kirkshin in our ESPN days. So I can testify uh, from massive personal research that you can kill many entertaining hours in a local tavern with this debate. (laughs) (laughs) That is very possible to do. But I thought we would do a fun twist on it here by looking at the four numbers that you wore, Doug, and see if maybe you were the greatest player ever to wear any of those numbers. You up for this? I I doubt it highly, but I appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, anytime. Uh, all right, let's start with a couple numbers that you only wore briefly. Uh, number four, you wore that just in your in your last stint as a Cub. 
So the greatest number four of all time, was it Gehrig, Ott, or Glanville? <laughs> right. Or Lenny Dykstra. That, that's the, yeah. that number was available when I first got traded over there. I was like, <laughs> nope, not taking that one. Uh, yeah, no chance I'm in that in that category. But it was fun. Uh, what, I don't know. What do you think, Gehrig, Ott? <laughs> uh, I would go Gehrig, the greatest number four in history. Yeah. They invented number four for him, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right, number eight, which you also wore briefly uh, yep. with the Cubs. The greatest number eight, was it Ripken, Yaz, mm. Yogi, or Glanville? <laughs> yeah, hmm, let me think about that. Well, I, can, <laughs> I think I think this game will go better if I just tell you I'm crossing myself off the list. <laughs> and then we'll see, you know, you have at it after that. Uh, yeah, I, I have Ripken Spikes. Does that count? I, have a, I, I got him assigned Spikes when I was... At third base, I looked down and said, those are nice kicks. Can you sign them and send them over? He's like, yeah. So he did. Uh, so I feel good about that. That's about That's as good. close as I come to that. <laughs> All right. So for, for that reason alone, let's go Ripken. <laughs> All right. Let's see. Let's go to let's, – let's talk about number one. Now, that's the number that you wore for most of your first two seasons of the big leagues with the Cubs, although you actually – you lost that number along yeah. somewhere along the way, right? What happened there? I did, I did lose it. Well, I mean, I had learned about the tradition about if, if you wear a number and your younger player, the veterans, if they get traded over to your team or whatever, they sign as a free agent, you're supposed to give your number up to the veteran player. That's kind of, it was known. You heard all these great stories too about getting a Rolex watch in exchange for your generosity of giving your number up. Because, you know, numbers, you know, have a lot of history. They mean a lot, so... So I heard about this, and sure enough, I'm playing for the Cubs, and Lance Johnson gets traded for Brian McRae oh. from the Mets to the Cubs. And I'm thinking, one, I might be the center fielder maybe. And then I said, wait a minute, Lance Johnson's nickname is, as you know, One Dog. <laughs> okay, One Dog, O-N-E, the number yeah. one dog. So, and I knew he wore number one pretty much wherever he played, so I figured this could be a problem. So he does. He, com <laughs> he comes over, and I think the the local Chicago media was they were asking me about, well, what are you going to do? And and I was thinking, oh, I'll get my Rolex watch or whatever, get a check. And uh, so he comes over, he sits me down, and he says, basically, it was like son to father to son. He's like. <laughs> I said, listen, I'm going to give you something that's way more valuable than money, than, than watches, than anything material. I'm going to give you advice. I'm going to, <laughs> that's what he said. I'm going to teach you how to play this game. I was like, okay, you can deposit as long as you write a check and sign an advice. I'm, I'm good with that. That's good. So he did. And he did help me out on, on a lot of real subtle, uh, unwritten rules about the game. He really did help. But I, I did not get um, I did not get anything material. But I did uh, because I was in the situation later when I left for free agency to the Rangers in 03, Jimmy Rollins, who was 11, took my number six because that was his high school number. He always wanted six. So he did. And then what did I do? I came back in 2004 <laughs> and I said, Jimmy, you know the tradition. Uh, I, you know, I'd like to get my number back. And I called him. And I remember I was like in a Best Buy store or something. I said, well, what do, you, what do you want? And I did. And I got him a laptop, a full-blown, really nice laptop uh, for his gesture of giving me my number back. And it was really hard for him. I mean, he was kind of speechless and because he loved six and he wanted it. But uh, 
as you know, I, I, I ended up prevailing. And I only did it for one year. And then he said, ah, forget it. I'm 11. And uh, it went pretty well after that, considering <laughs> M- MVP, to world championships, and all these things. So yeah, uh, it worked out pretty well. So you, and, you, and that was a lesson that you learned from Lance Johnson. Now, Lance, uh, I always liked Lance, you know, very bright, yeah. fun guy. I talked to him a couple of years ago for uh, an oral history piece I was working on and uh, loved talking to him. But now that I hear that story, you got <laughs> nothing from him? I think he should have learned uh, the beauty of having the nickname 58 dog or something. Yeah, that would have been nice. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But wait, we, di- we digress from our, our, our debate here. The greatest number one in history. Was it Ozzie Smith, Oof. Richie Ashburn, or Doug Glanville? Well, cross me off. Uh, I, had, <laughs> I, had, I had dinner with Ozzie Smith at the hall in Cooperstown, so I feel good about that. Uh, I, yeah, Richie wow. actually came across. I have a picture with Richie Ashburn when I was in college uh, at, a, at a game, and it might have been Dick Allen was there. It's two, so yeah, pretty cool. Uh, I ooh, that, you have to give me the stats on the two to compare, but you hey, know. it's Ozzie. Yeah, all right. It's I yeah, can go it's with that. It. Yeah, I mean, all, all due respect to my friends in Philadelphia, Ozzie Smith, greatest number one ever. And finally, the number you, that you wore for seven years in Philadelphia and Texas, as you mentioned, was number six. Yep. So who was the greatest player to wear number six? Was it Musial, K-Line, or Glanville? Well, if you, if you make the territory... Number six is who were born in, in Hackensack, New Jersey, and raised in Teaneck, New Jersey. Then I may be I'm the greatest number six. That's about it, though. Uh, territory is limited. Uh, but yeah, these, oof, I don't know. I mean, we talked, you know, K-Line had obviously a great career, and may he rest in peace. Uh, what do you got? Musel, wow. I mean, no, Musel was incredible. <laughs> I don't know what Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah the, answer's, the, the answer's Stan Musel to every question. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, I do want to talk for a minute about Al Kaline because, as you mentioned, uh, we lost him last week. And Al was one of my very favorite people in baseball to run across in my travels. You, you know, Doug, it always amazed me to walk into the Tigers clubhouse in spring training and you'd find Al Kaline there in full uniform. And he was 80 years old and he looked like he could go out and hit cleanup. It was amazing. Uh, just an incredible guy. Just never lost that vitality, uh, curiosity, uh, awareness of everything. I never, ever missed a chance to talk to Al if a uh, chance presented itself. Uh, he was just so friendly, so welcoming, so interesting, so interested in everything and everyone. Uh, I used to love to talk to him about Miguel Cabrera, you know, because he told me Miguel Cabrera was way better than he ever was. That's said that every time I ever talked to him. He told me once that Miggy reminded him of Ted Williams, and that was because he had this incredible feel for hitting. And he told this story. He said he once asked Ted, Ted, do you guess at the plate? And Ted said, Al, I never guess. I anticipate. <laughs> right? And he said that was Miggy. So I used to love, love those stories. Tremendous. Um I got 3,007 hits, Doug, every one of them for the Detroit Tigers. And I thought, you know what? I want to read a list of the only men to get 3,000 hits all for one team. So here it goes. Stan Musial, Derek Jeter, Carl Yastrzemski, Cal Ripken Jr., George Brett, Robin Yount, Tony Gwynn, 
Craig Biggio, Roberto Clemente, and Al Kaline. How about mm. that group? Mm. Amazing. I mean, that that's iconic. That's how you mark history with one team. I mean, your your name becomes synonymous with that organization. Uh, really incredible. Incredible. Uh, before we go, I want to give you a chance to update us <clears throat> on the Twitter poll that you took last week because this was a this the, I think Jerry Blevins was the guy who said that the phrase "have a catch" was a phrase uttered by no one ever except <laughs> Kevin Costner <laughs> in the dreaded Doug Glanville flick Field of Dreams. And so you actually did a Twitter poll to find out whether people said. Have a catch or let's play catch, right? Yeah, so what'd you find? I did. Uh, I, I was surprised actually that have a catch only won 23% of the vote and 77 went to play catch, want to play catch. And I think my surprise came from maybe growing up in Jersey and a lot of my friends responded from my little league days says, oh no, we said have a catch. I said, okay. I, I almost don't remember it that well because when you start, I know for me, when I started playing professionally, they both sort of dropped off and it became more, hey, you want to throw or let's warm up. It became that. And I, I for decades, that's what I said. And I completely forgot how I would have said it. And, and it, I didn't make the connection in Field of Dreams why that was problematic to people from Iowa, for example, who were like, <laughs> we never say have a cat. Uh, so yeah, and, and and maybe there's a childhoodness to that. It's like, you're you're a professional now. You come out of the dugout and say, hey, Desi Relford, you want to play catch? It just sounds crazy. <laughs> it just sounds ridiculous, right? I mean, so you don't say that. And so it kind of melted off and it was nice to revisit that. But by overwhelming majority, People said, want to play catch. I had them tell me where they were from. And it was pretty, <laughs> a pretty good geography of, of vast, you know, different places. Some people got older and had kids and then they sort of changed or they moved to different places and got used to it. So, but still, play catch dominated that poll. All right. Now, I want you to admit to me that you decided to hold this poll just to stoke more antipathy <laughs> to this beloved film, right? No, I was genuinely curious. I was like, I mean, I, I was like, wow, did people say? And those were kind of the two answers. Occasionally you got maybe some rare third answer, but pretty much those were the only two things I heard. Um, unless you were, like I said, the professional said throw or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Just, just one more bit of ammunition for you right now, in case you ever need it. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of Starkville. Uh, great to know that Doug's going to be permitted to remain inside these Starkville city limits, even though he's so Ooh. wrong. He's Ooh. so wrong about Field of Dreams, right? He's wrong. But anyway, uh, future Starkvilles just like this one will be available absolutely free everywhere you get your podcasts. So be sure to subscribe to Starkville at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, tune in pretty much everywhere podcasts are sold. And of course... You can still find us at the Athletic app and the Athletic website. Also, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm guessing there's a team in the big leagues that you care about. And maybe you don't know that the Athletic now has 16 local major league podcasts, and they feature not just our great baseball writers, but all kinds of broadcasters, former players, and other baseball luminaries. And like Starkville, they are also available free wherever you get your podcasts. One more thing. If you thought about subscribing to The Athletic, 
we are still producing the best baseball stories in the universe right now, even there, even though there's no baseball. You can get 40% off a new subscription by just going to theathletic.com slash Starkville. Uh, in between podcasts, you can read us on the Athletic website and on the Athletic app. And just like Craig McCullough, who submitted such a great question that we both got right, uh, remember that you too can be part of this podcast and achieve those 15 seconds of fame that you have always dreamed of. Here's how it works. You just need to submit a trivia question that the evil mayor of Starkville, Mayor Cam, decides can make me and Doug look like dopes as usual. Then we'll get it wrong. Uh, we'll use your question. It would inspire a fun topic of conversation on our podcast. And everybody will live happily ever after. So if you would like to shoot a trivia question at us, uh, we've got an email inbox. You can email it to Starkville at theathletic.com. That's Starkville with an E on the end at theathletic.com. Or you can send in those questions via Twitter. Where would they say get a hold of Doug Glanville? Oh, very easy. Just my name, at Doug Glanville, D-O-U-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. Did I say the second G? No, you spelled your name wrong. Oh, I skipped the second G. Let's do that again. Pretty easy. <laughs> at Doug Glanville, D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. Hit me up. This man was really found innocent? He just misspelled his own name? Yeah, wow. I skipped the second G. Oh, wow. All right. Well, if you want to tweet these questions at me, I'm always interested. Uh, I am at Jason S T, and that's Jason with a Y, J A Y S O N S T. And remember, got to hashtag those questions. Hashtag Starkville Q S. That's Starkville with an E Q S. So, Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to you all for listening, and we'll see you next week on Starkville.